0: Join the Dots, the podcast about the impacts of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, Demystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. Welcome to this episode of Demystifying Expertise for Join the Dots. In this episode, I'm talking to Kerry Tankarter because she's doing many things, um, amongst which is being a trustee for RSPB, being a non-executive board member for Natural England and providing consultancy services. But I particularly like the way that she brings different parties like business, government, NGOs, together in a very graceful cooperative way and help them come to agreement over very important topics. Kerry, lovely to have you on Join the Dots. Hello, EJ.
1: How nice to speak to you.
0: Let's start with what you're doing these days. What's your field?
1: My field, aha. Well, I have honestly no idea what my field is. Um, Maybe when we get to the end of the discussion, you can tell me in your opinion what my field is. But I guess I feel as though right now I'm happily sitting on a fence that's sort of between a number of different fields, policy, law, economics, behaviour, science, importantly, all to do with sustainable development and particularly biodiversity. So what I actually do is try and put biodiversity and ecosystem services and natural capital into economic decision making, whether that's by governments making policy or company strategy or organisations setting their own approaches.
0: Lots of people I speak to, they're not actually specialising in a particular field, but maybe I'm naturally drawn to people like you, that they are across many fields and bringing lots of different people together. But you did study law. So how did you go from law to this fence that you're on at the moment?
1: Well, I already knew that I wanted to do something to do with environment and development, because I had some really formative experiences with my parents driving overland to India and back, and also some brushes with the English planning system to do with environment here. So I already knew roughly what I wanted to do. But I thought that advocacy and the experience of being a lawyer would be pretty interesting because I actually got into uni on maths and chemistry and I couldn't particularly see a way forward for those. So it was great training. And I was just so lucky. I think I've just been in the right place at the right time several times in my career. And I was practicing at the end of the 80s. And that's when uh, Maurice Strong, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, was recruiting his secretariat They were going to be negotiating climate change and the CBD in Agenda 21. And he was looking for somebody who would be his speechwriter and general factotum. And at that stage, I'd done bits of writing for the national press in England. And I'd done a few radio programmes for the BBC. And I had my law degree and a bit of experience being an advocate as a barrister. So he hired me and I was just a young person in my very early 20s. And I got to be amongst all these amazing experts who were largely long career experts from all sorts of different disciplines brought together in this fabulous interdisciplinary
0: team to do all the things that the Rio Earth Summit did. So it was a reason, but probably an inspiration for you as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what Rio Earth Summit was and what it was like being there? It was a
1: phenomenon. I mean, I look back at it now and it seems sort of semi-miraculous Because I cannot imagine that if we were starting negotiations today, we would negotiate multiple treaties and various other things in the space of three years. It seems sort of inconceivable. And also setting the tone for some other things I've really enjoyed doing later. It was like a kind of carte blanche. It was still sort of open field. There was a lot that hadn't yet been done. And it was done at super quick time. There was a good confluence of political will and interest. People felt the need at the international level there was a real buzz. I mean, when we came to the actual summit, I think there was something like 110 heads of state there. And it was one of the first big summit meetings, if not the first. So it was a great big leap up in political attention. And the negotiators pulled it off. They reached agreement on these things. And now I look at it and, you know, I do wonder whether we would pull something as comprehensive off with such speed Mm. today.
0: So 1992 is the start of my career as well, and I think 29 years on, we are talking about the actions that are taken at that summit. So the Climate Change Convention, the COP26 that will now take place in Glasgow in November 2021, and the Convention on Biodiversity were all started in that summit. They were, yes. So it seems to have kickstarted your career in, in this field. Definitely. It definitely did.
1: You know, it's funny when you train as a lawyer, it took me a little while to not get hired as a lawyer because that was my, (laughs) that was what was on my CV. You know, that was my professional background. And I think what I learned at Rio and the job I did there helped me make that transition. But that was my way into policy and also delivery on the ground, really on environment and development.
0: Are you still involved in that level of international negotiations?
1: Not as much as I was. I mean, I I went to pretty much every CBD COP, bar a couple of them, including the most recent ones. I was on the UK delegation to the CBD for several years, so I was quite involved then. So I followed it, and the funny thing is, I've worn every conceivable coloured ticket at the CBD Cops. Save indigenous person, which I don't count as because I'm half (laughs) Dutch and half Welsh, so there's nothing particularly indigenous about me. But Mm -hmm. I've been business, I've been the UN, I've been government, I've been NGO, so it's been very interesting seeing those negotiations and taking part in them from different perspectives.
0: So we're going to be inundated by the news from these conventions later this year. How does it work? I didn't know how people had different coloured tickets, for example. different badges according to whether
1: they're a party or a non-party essentially oh it's a fascinating process it's like a kind of game of chess and it's wonderful to be part of it can be very frustrating as well but it sort of works at two parallel speeds because there's the long life of the convention and long lead-up times which I know you'll be aware of from your expertise in climate change so you have you know years planning for things but at the same time Those are sort of setting the scene for trying to reach agreements in quite an intense period, usually a week or two at the UN meetings. And it's like an onion. So there's kind of outer ring of the plenary, which is where all the parties come together and take their decisions. And then the next ring into the onion would be working groups to sort of split the entire agenda on the table out into sort of manageable bite-sized chunks. And then within that, you typically have contact groups, which are small working groups. You can't have everybody, all 198 parties in the room together trying to make decisions on everything. So you tend to have regional representation. You might have one or two people for each of the regional blocks who get nominated to be on these contact groups because they have particularly strong feelings on that particular agenda item. And these people are charged with a limited period of time to try and come up with solutions reflected in text And the whole idea is everyone's working towards consensus text without any of the dreaded square brackets in, which represent not yet consensus or lack of agreement. So these small groups, you know, literally on some occasions, I've worked straight through the night with other colleagues and being from the United Kingdom, I think have a certain advantage in that when the budget runs out for the interpreters and they go home at midnight or whatever it is, and we continue working on, that's usually in English. And Mm. very talented colleagues from around the world who've been working in the six languages of the UN, graciously switch to English, which is often not their mother tongue, to continue the negotiations. And then you work your way back out through the rings of the onion, you know, working up again to working groups, getting them to adopt the text, try and remove as many square brackets. And then eventually it comes back essentially to the final plenary, which is often something that goes late, late, late. So it's quite gripping.
0: Yes, I remember the Paris Agreement of Climate Change Convention that people coming out with signed papers in their hands as a victory lap almost. Was that the place where you've learned to work with these people from different places? I've looked through your CV that you kindly sent, and your work seems to involve investors, business, NGOs, government. And sometimes these people don't talk to each other and they won't even talk to the experts or consultants that they know of working for the other side. These are quite difficult people to bring together. How do you do it? Well, there has to be a
1: good reason for them to come together, like a shared problem that's only going to get sorted out if there's agreement between everybody. So climate change is a great example you know aspects of the CBD are we'll only fix the problem with our swinging losses of biodiversity if economic decision making creates the right incentives and rewards people for doing the right thing. So we have to have business on board and similarly investors. The UN isn't always the best place for people who are not representing a government because they're observers, so they don't have essentially the same seat at the table. And that's why some of the practical solutions get dealt with in other fora business innovation. And, you know, groups of businesses have been very influential in trying to come up with practical solutions to a number of problems to sort of suggest what would work in a regulatory framework. Investment, as you know, is just a really, really important lever right now. And you're right, these people have different motivations, different things get them out of bed in the morning. Different things are sufficiently important or material to them to make enough of a difference to change a decision, an investment strategy or whatever. And one of the things that I've really appreciated in my career, and I think it's becoming much more common, and is to allow people to move between these sectors. So it really helps if you're perhaps working for an NGO and you have to enter into an agreement with business. It really helps if you've been inside business for some years and you know the language of business and what it is that they're looking at in terms of risk and opportunity and how you can phrase your own needs in such a way as to reflect very directly what they'll be looking for. It just helps you get to that level of agreement. And similarly, I think it helps companies work with people who spent some time inside government and who you know, are familiar with the way that decisions get made in the UN or how stuff gets handled between different departments in government or whatever it may be. So I think in careers, it's super helpful to move between business and government and finance and NGOs. And when I think back to my university days, you know, I I read law. I didn't honestly enjoy the course very much. There were bits of it that I absolutely loved. And I adored my tutor. I thought she was fabulous. And I met many other great teachers and, you know, lots of friends along the way. But at that time, there was a sort of milk round. And as a lawyer, what would be good would be going into a law firm and becoming a partner there or a judge or becoming a barrister, which is the route that I took. And there was sort of a semi-expectation that that would then be your career for life. I remember when I expressed an opinion to my tutor at one point that I might not be a career lawyer. She said, oh, I think you should perhaps consider PR. And I think that was the only (laughs) other thing that might have been on the radar and also, I feel that people's um, CVs, if they were applying for a job, it, you know, people were a little bit frowned upon if they'd leapt between these different sectors and didn't have a level of continuity. And the questions would be, why is this person doing this? You know, did they not make a success of this? Or were they not settled here? And have they done this long enough to really know? And now I think that interdisciplinarity is positively welcome. Certainly in the you know years gone by when I've been hiring people to teams I've been on, it's been a benefit. I've been delighted to see people with these different backgrounds. And I think that's much more the case now, which is very, very helpful. That said, I think we still have big silos and you know different vocabulary and goals between these groups. So I still think there's a need for the connective tissue type people. And I think it'd be really good if there was a more fluid system for getting people who are quite senior in government into business for a while and to, you know, second people from business into government. Just to get that diversity of thought and experience,
0: you seem to me to be one of those connecting tissue people. Do you do a lot of research about these different parties or even the individuals you're about to start work so that you understand or their position well?
1: If you have the luxury of time, it's extremely mm-hmm. good idea to do that. I mean for me. I just tried to spend a chunk of my career in very different settings. Mm. So, for example, I had the privilege of working at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew for seven years, and that was sort of working on bioprospecting and biosciences and intellectual property rights and how great collections and science organizations can go around the world and access materials for their collections and for their science. And then I had a really big shift after that because it was the civil service. I was allowed a short break for sabbatical. So I just took a few weeks off and by good fortune was able to go into an office in the city of London and an asset management company and just experience that. And then they headhunted uh, me and actually other colleagues, even though it was a financial institution, they were recruiting people from Amnesty International and WWF and they recruited me from Q, And I felt like such a fish out of water Initially I felt like I could fly the, the shuttle from I had all these screens and Bloomberg tickers and <laughs> it was a very different working environment from being in an office in a botanical garden. But it was fascinating and I'm so glad I did it. I sort of agonized over the decision because I loved it at Q and I was very happy and I was capitalizing on some work I'd put a lot of effort into. Um so it felt like a big risk to just change tack completely. But the team I worked with were wonderful. They were super bright, very motivated. I learned so much. I got exposed to different ways of thinking because not only did I get to hang out with some of the fund managers, sort of asset management side and investors, but we were invested in companies. And so you commonly were meeting with companies and doing quite a lot of in-depth research and analysis. And you really needed to understand how they ticked and what their attitude to risk and performance was and what good looks like. So I think that was really helpful and it it actually sort of created the springboard for the next thing I did as well. So, yeah, I think it's great to get inside different types of organization.
0: I wanted to ask you about the Bebop. Was that the next one? Yeah, it was
1: actually. That was pretty much the next one. You're really on top of my CV here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bebop. I always liked the Bebop name. (laughs) Business and Biodiversity Offsets Programme. Bebop to its friends. That's right. How did that come about?
1: So the purpose of Bebop was to bring together lots of representatives from governments around the world, from companies, from financial institutions and from NGOs to reach consensus on what excellent looks like in planning for no net loss or biodiversity net gain. So, you know, what are the rules of avoidance, minimization, restoration and finally offsetting so that we can try and get much better outcomes for nature in the context of development projects?
0: You mentioned biodiversity right at the start, but can you tell us what biodiversity is? So
1: it's the variability of life on Earth. And my friend, the Convention on Biological Diversity, defines it on a number of levels, right from the ecosystem level, a really big level, through habitats and species and down to the genetic level so it's just the variability of life on earth essentially Mm -hmm. and not only literally the diversity but the abundance of that diversity really matters too
0: our listeners are people who are interested in environment some of them are probably in business some of them are in NGOs I don't know But we we don't have in-depth knowledge about why business should care about biodiversity. Or do they really genuinely care about biodiversity? Or are they pretending? So it depends on how much it matters for their business model,
1: um, how material it is to them. So when I was at Insight Investment in the city, that gave me a fabulous place to test that theory and find out the extent to which it was financially material to companies and made a difference to them. So... A cunning method of exploring companies' attitude to things is to sort of benchmark their performance. And coming from government side, where the way you intervene is to create a law or a regulation, or it's kind of mandatory and command and control, it was just a revelation to me to see how there's a race to the top if investors encourage the companies that they're invested in to kind of compete and show excellence in an area. And so I created with colleagues a benchmark that defined good practice on biodiversity for companies in a number of sectors whose interaction was relatively similar. So oil and gas, mining and minerals and utilities. So the people who have big yellow trucks and shape habitats and cause losses of biodiversity that way, but who can also um, invest in biodiversity for conservation purposes to balance that. So uh, that was a really interesting framework. And at that time, there was work in other asset managers in the city that were also beginning to explore this. And the upshot is that biodiversity is among a number of factors which are financially material to companies in different sectors, according to their business model and their exposure. So some of the things are to do with license to operate, like you're just not going to get a license to be a mining company somewhere like Madagascar, unless you can show excellence. Other things are to do with securing your supply chain, for example, in agriculture and, you know, those sorts of sectors, forestry and so on. Others are to do with your investment risk. Some of it's to do with your reputational risk. But the more kind of organically welded the issue is to your core business model and strategy the more relevant it is to your risk and opportunity and the more effort as a company you're going to put into showing excellence and outcompeting your peers or distinguishing yourself on that basis it's quite interesting because biodiversity often in itself is a unique issue for some companies and some sectors itself it is a material but quite often it's linked to a bunch of other social and economic things human rights and other things that taken as a package really matter to the company but occasionally it's difficult to untangle the gordian knot and come out with a single thread that says yes biodiversity is going to make the share price of this company change kind of overnight so it's usually a sort of package of measures mm-hmm. but it is in there you've probably seen the recent Dasgupta report which talks to some degree about the financial materiality of biodiversity and how fundamentally important it is to the economy and i really think that companies are understanding that more and more and are addressing it and safeguarding their futures by considering nature as well as climate change.
0: We will put a reference link to the Das review on the web page for, for this episode. Yeah, I think sometimes we make the mistake that we want others to care about something in the way that we care about it. But they might have different reasons in this case, whether biodiversity is a material issue for the sustainability of the business itself.
1: You're exactly right. And I think that brings us back to a conversation we had a little earlier, where you need to be able to speak the language of the other sectors. So it doesn't do to come in with a sort of NGO hat on and preach about how important biodiversity is to the world, necessarily. Usually people in companies are quite well read and will understand that in general terms. But what matters for their specific decision making is the relevance of biodiversity to their business. So it helps if you can couch your discussions in those terms. So, yeah, speaking other sectors' language. And you were just saying about getting people to understand the other side and motivating them. It's interesting. I think one of the really big challenges that we face is this syndrome of another sector in society is where the solutions lie. So, quite often, government can think, well, business doesn't like the imposition of regulations And competition will, you know, lead to improvements in practice. So we, government, don't need to step in. Let's let business sort that out. Look, they're doing all this voluntary stuff. And then business can think, well, there's only so much we can do voluntarily and remain competitive. And policy intervention is needed for change. And we'd like a level playing field. So let's leave it to government. And then people, consumers like you and me can think, well, look, I'm tiny and powerless and there's not very much I can do to change things. So I really need to leave that to government and business. So you get this sort of standoff. It's almost like a a paralysis where each of these sectors feels that the issue rests with someone else to solve. And I think part of this interdisciplinary thing is to find the ways that you can bring those people together and get everyone to do what they need to do for the whole show to move forward
0: that's inspirational, that that way of looking at how we can bring different people together and how you can help them identify what's within their power and what needs collaboration. But is that what you did with Bebop when you brought these different people together?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, with Bebop, we were simultaneously trying to solve a number of problems. So the idea is that development happens and is often needed, and there's going to be infrastructure development and energy development and consumption and all the rest of it. And that's causing a loss of biodiversity. And yet we have significant and important targets for its conservation. So how can we square the circle? and support necessary development appropriate development in the right place at the right time and still secure biodiversity outcomes and the answer is to follow the mitigation hierarchy to try and avoid harm first then minimize harm to the extent you can to clear up your mess afterwards through restoration in the places you've had an impact and then finally as a last resort to offset the residual impacts that are left over from projects so that's the solution
0: there are people who are a bit uncomfortable because they they worry whether offsetting or credits would be used as a kind of license to trash or something. You know, like, oh, I'll just pay for it. I'll just pay for some offsetting. I'll just carry on doing my mining or my motorway bulldozed through woodlands and stuff because I'll just go and do something cheap somewhere else. But I think that's what you're saying is that we don't want that We want to have the systems in place and the exchanges regulated so that it's definitely the last resort.
1: Spot on. And that's all to do with the standards that you set and particularly how rigorous you are about the first and most important step, which is avoidance. Mm. You need to have you know, really good alternatives assessments. You need to make sure that avoidance isn't skipped through glibly and offsets are truly the last resort. And then you need the standards and the incentives that make that happen. And that's been what I have been lucky enough to dwell on with my colleagues and team over the last sort of 15 years. And I think that we can learn from examples around the world and I sincerely
0: hope that we'll be able to do a good job of that in England. And I, I guess we have to have these conversations because we can't forever point the finger at someone else and saying it's your problem, you choose it, because we do use those roads, we do consume the food, we do use the energy, so we all have some stake in the harm that's caused, but also power to request better practice. And you sit on a couple of environmental organizations boards, to help them make these links, I suspect. And one of them is, I think, are they the biggest environmental charity in in the UK, Royal Society for Protection of Birds? Yes, over a million
1: members. It's a magnificent organisation started by some pioneering women in 1891. So it's been around for a while. And it's such a privilege to be part of that. I'm a trustee And I've recently been elected as the chair of their conservation committee, which is, as you can imagine, very much at the sort of heart of the strategy for an organisation that's essentially working on conservation. And the breadth of the work in the UK, both terrestrially and marine, but also in all the UK overseas territories, and in quite a lot of places internationally, quite often in partnership with BirdLife International and other partners, is fascinating. But you're
0: also... On the board, is it, on of Natural England? Yes, I'm a non-executive member of the board of Natural England. But that's a government organisation, is that it right? It
1: is. Yes, that's right. It's one of the sort of arm's length bodies that sits under DEFRA.
0: So in the the roles of NGOs in decision making, in policy making, is not something that a lot of people are familiar with. I mean, we're, we're familiar with RSPB's garden bird watch campaigns and their conservation areas, but they also contribute to a lot of research and innovation and policy engagement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's
1: true. I think you're right that you know the public perception of some of the environmental NGOs is perhaps the things that most cross their doormat in campaigns and so on. And there's a lot of work going on uh, more broadly. RSPB is amazing in that regard because it actually owns a lot of reserves. So it's involved at just about every level. It's actually managing land. You know, it's got amazing rewilding projects. It's got really fabulous, detailed management activities that are tailored to ensuring that particular species survive into the long, long term. It does quite a lot of analysis and influencing of policy. So it really understands, for example, UK evolving policy on Climate change on another topic we've talked about today, biodiversity net gain. So RSPB and colleagues in other environmental NGOs tend to work in collaboration to advise government as consultees in various processes or to work together. I think there's just a lot of opportunity for partnership between these organisations in the future. Really what we're talking about is working at the landscape scale. And I think that it's really common knowledge now in environmental and government circles that we need to raise our aspirations, raise our eyes to the horizon. And organisations like RSPB are already working quite a broad scale, you know, big landscapes. And there's the opportunity, I don't know if you've ever been down to beautiful Purbeck Heath in, in Dorset, but there it's just a brilliant example because you've got the National Trust, you've got the RSPB, you've got the Wildlife Trust, you've got Natural England, got all sorts of other landowners working in that area so that collectively we can do what Sir John Lawton was really asking for, which is more, bigger, better and joined up, because that's how we're going to get the gains for biodiversity. We're going to get nature's recovery if we work at scale. So it's fascinating to me that these NGOs, of course, they have their own reserves and land, but they're quite often working with farmers, with landowners to sort of spread their influence and bring about conservation gains in the broader landscape.
0: I want to ask you about what's the biggest challenge that you face in your work, trying to bring all these different groups together?
1: Well, you know, an obvious one is political will. You know, we need people at the most senior levels in government to make some dramatic changes. It's quite encouraging to see the number of policy ambitions that are now on the table. So the question is, how do we make those happen in practice? And, you know, I think getting people to invest the political capital needed to change certain things is probably the biggest challenge of all. Because actually, I think in most cases, we have solutions to most of our profound problems. We know what needs to be done, but they all represent change. They represent change in investment behaviour, in policy, in accounting and in behaviour of people like you and me. We just need to go and consume differently and behave differently and travel differently so that's probably the biggest challenge, but there's, there's a few other ones. Another bugbear of mine is getting people out of silos and into a position where we can have really rapid joined up decision making and at the right scale. So we just talked about landscape level planning and delivery at scale. And for that, you need to plan at the level of regions. You know, you can't do that at the site level. And the national level is helpful because it sets targets and aspirations, but it's not quite the same as getting down and dirty in a big landscape or a region and deciding how and where you're going to put your agriculture and your infrastructure development and your biodiversity and conserve your peat. You know, where do we put all these important parts of the mosaic in the landscape and what's the best level to plan at? You know, we don't always have that regional level of planning at which it becomes possible to consider things like cumulative impacts of projects we tend still to look at individual projects and then I think there's a level of kind of fatalism mixed with false optimism that can be a challenge we talked about that earlier where government thinks business will do stuff anyway and business thinks it can't do stuff until it's regulated and so on that's a big challenge getting everyone to see what is necessary for each constituency to do to make the whole thing work And then I guess just getting the urgency and getting the results on the ground. And I think proof of concept is really helpful to get demonstration projects. They're so Mm. powerful. It's so funny because I started as a lawyer and then, you know, much of my career has been inside scientific organisations. It's a very profoundly rational background. It's all about making tight arguments and adducing the evidence so that surely now this argument's been made and all this evidence has been shown that must be enough to change everything. And You know, over time, I realized that there's a much more emotional and narrative aspect to it as well. So that's why proof of concept is really powerful, because it breaks down concerns that things sound great on paper, but can't be done in the messy reality of business or landscape level planning or whatever and also it tells a story it inspires people and communicates things so yeah i think that whole narrative angle is raising in my <laughs> in my mm. understanding of importance as well as all the evidence based approaches that we need to
0: sometimes because we we love the topics that we work in we want to bring all the answers to the table and until then we're not ready to make arguments but yes Given maybe an example, an encouraging example to others, so that they want to do better. I think you were saying about benchmarking, in you know showing examples of what can be done, sometimes encourages people to do the same. It does. You know the power of examples is
1: amazing. On the board of Natural England, and each board member has a few different topics that they're champion for, and amongst the ones that I am, alongside biodiversity net gain and a bit of elm and offshore wind and Norfolk and Suffolk, I have rewilding. And I don't know whether you've read the delightful book by Isabella Tree called Wilding, which is the story of her and her husband, Charlie Burrell's work Mm -hmm. at NEP, but it's beautifully written and it's just an inspirational Mm -hmm. story. And it's amazing how influential that one example, I mean, there are loads of excellent examples of rewilding all around the country now, which offer a way forward and another string to our bow to get conservation outcomes But a really good, well-communicated example has the power to change policy. You know, we're seeing much more take-up now and I believe that that example has been an important contribution to that.
0: So you might have answered this question already, but I just wanted to ask you to end on a positive note. What keeps you going through this urgent area of work?
1: Well, I shall quote you the opening sentence of a very famous and wonderful book. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. And that's the Anthropocene for you. That's where we are. And what keeps me going is that we have the opportunity to turn things around. We still have a window of opportunity. We actually have a pretty clear idea of what needs to be done to sort of jump through that window, if I'm not pushing the metaphor too far. (laughs) Uh, there are lots of inspirational people out there with amazing skills. So that's what keeps me going. It's the hope that we can pull it off. And what else would you do? You, you, surely if you believe what I, be, I think you and I do, which is how wonderful what we've got is and how important it is to future generations and that we have the chance to make a difference, despite the fact that the trends are not heading in a, in a very encouraging direction at the moment, then of course you would throw everything you've got at it and try and make the most of the opportunities that we do have in front of us right now. Thank you so much, Kerry. Well, Ece, it was a pleasure spending some time talking to you and um, I hope, hope people will enjoy it and I'd like to hear what, what ideas it stimulates.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team. Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McKeown on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.